With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, how is everybody? Welcome to Whitlock's Weekly Fire Starters. I'm your boy, Uncle Jimmy, and let me tell you what's going on. On Monday's show, <laughs> Lamar Jackson, the question is, is it time to stop babying him? Is it time for him to put his big pants on? Is it time for him to step up and take criticism like the other quarterbacks in the NFL? Hmm. Take a listen. Last week, dear friend of mine texted me about the consistent criticism her co-workers were directing at her. The criticism, she says, is tinged with sexism and jealousy. My friend is in real estate. Her results are quantifiable and impressive. Her success isn't subjective or debatable. So I advised her that criticism is the background music of success. It's one of my favorite sayings. I said she should let the music play. It's great music. So should the fans of the Baltimore Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson. If Lamar's ever gonna return to his MVP level of play, he'll need to face the music, the harsh criticism that goes along with being a franchise quarterback. On Sunday, CBS broadcaster Tony Romo politely insinuated that Jackson overthrew tight end Mark, Jack, uh, Mark Andrews on a two-point conversion play that would have won the game for the Ravens. The pass fell incomplete and Baltimore lost 20-19 to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Let's take a look at the clip and listen to Romo's commentary. Oh, what a gutsy call. I love it. What I a just gutsy think call. I think most people, these two coaches, this is why they've been here so long. of time. This is the rivalry, Ben Roethlisberger. I think your season's on the line right here, Pittsburgh fans. Here we go. 30th time between Tomlin and Harbaugh. What a decision this is. The game hinges on one play. Jackson flings it. Andrews can't get to it. Could not reel it in. Incomplete. taking so much hinging on a matter of a pass being just a bit too far wide and the crazy thing is even if it was one more inch right he could have tipped it to himself even which he's done we showed it earlier he's done it so many times before he got the onside kick coming up it's not all right so across social media people pretended romo unfairly ripped jackson Jackson's defenders pointed to the pressure T.J. Watt applied on Jackson. They blamed Andrews for dropping a pass that hit his one outstretched hand. Look, it was a bad pass. 
it needed to be arched and dropped in over Andrews' shoulder as he faded toward the pylon and the goal line. Tony Romo played quarterback in the NFL for a long time. He knows exactly how that pass needed to be thrown. There was nothing unfair about the critique of Jackson. After a five and one start to the season and talk of Jackson winning his second MVP trophy, the Ravens have lost three of their last six games. Worse, in his last six starts, Jackson has thrown eight touchdowns and 10 interceptions. Even worse, in his last 11 starts this season, Jackson has thrown more touchdowns than interceptions in just five of the games. For the first time in his four-year career, Jackson is raising serious questions about whether the Ravens should view him as their long-term solution at quarterback. There's an idiom in sports that applies to Jackson. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. This season, as a passer, Jackson isn't getting better. The timing of his decline couldn't be more problematic. This coming offseason, the Ravens should be offering Jackson a mammoth contract extension. Two months ago, after Jackson threw for 442 yards and four touchdowns against the Colts, it was easy to envision Jackson getting a contract that exceeded Patrick Mahomes' $500 million deal with the Chiefs. What is Jackson worth today? How good will he be two years from now? The best thing for Jackson at this moment is criticism. It fueled his shocking rise from late first round draft pick to the most valuable player. Criticism and skepticism are raw vegetables for competitors. They don't taste great going down, but nothing is better fuel for your body, mind, spirit, and attitude. Michael Jordan invented critics. Tom Brady hunts for critics and skeptics on a daily basis. Muhammad Ali's critics drove him to become the greatest. Social media, social justice warriors, the pundits at ESPN and Fox Sports spend their days trying to protect black athletes from criticism. They think worship builds black men. Worship is an act that should be reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. It cripples everyone else. Men can't handle worship. Why do you think so many celebrities lack self-awareness and surrender to drugs, alcohol, illicit sex, and mental instability? The way prominent black athletes are coddled in modern culture reminds me of one of the most powerful scenes from the movie Remember the Titans, the story of the legendary high school football coach Herman Boone as played by Denzel Washington. Boone scolded one of his white assistant coaches for protecting the black players from criticism. Watch Denzel lay it all out here. Now you think you're doing these boys a favor, taking them aside every time I come down on them, protecting them from big bad Boone. You're cutting my legs from under me. Some of the boys just don't respond well to public criticism. I tell them what they need to know, but I don't humiliate them in front of the team. Which boys you talking about? Which ones you talking about? I come down on Bertier, I don't see you coddle him. Come down on Sunshine, don't see you grab his hand, take him off to the side. Which boys you talking about? Now, I may be a mean cuss, but I'm the same mean cuss with everybody out there on that football field. 
The world don't give a damn about how sensitive these kids are, especially the young black kids. He ain't doing these kids a favor by patronizing them. You're crippling them. You're crippling them for life. Mm. Mm. That is music to my ears. I tell people this all the time. No one gets upset. No one in care. I used to light up Carl Peterson, Marty Schottenheimer, anybody, the quarterbacks, anybody in Chiefs uniform. And, and then, oh my God, you criticize LeBron. Oh, the, you done sold out. You criticize LeBron. Why are you so hard on these black athletes? No one cares when I light up white athletes, coaches, executives. But they panties are all getting a bunch, and oh my God, you're Colin Kaepernick. How can you criticize Colin Kaepernick? Criticism is a sign of respect, a byproduct of high expectations. I criticize Lamar Jackson because I respect him and have high expectations for him. I was skeptical of his NFL prospects initially. He earned my respect with his approach to the game, his no excuse attitude, and his exceptional play. The people making excuses for Lamar Jackson don't respect him and have low expectations for him. The people trying to stop the criticism music from playing don't want Jackson to succeed or don't know what it takes to succeed at the highest level. On Tuesday's show, for those of you to remember Monday Night Football, the New England Patriots' recent win has Jason wanting to talk about Bill Belichick and how he doesn't let pride get in his way of winning. Oh, wow. You got to hear this one. But I want you to pay, and I need the audience to pay very close attention to what I'm about to talk about because it relates to a conversation Jim and I have had in private amongst ourselves, amongst me and him. And, and it relates to an idea or my belief that pride, and it's, you know, the Bible says it's one of the, you know, seven deadly sins. And, and I think some people lose sight of the potential damaging impact of pride, because we tend to think of pride as this great thing and that we should have it. And, and I think it's particularly acute uh, for us in the black community. A lot of our music uh, celebrates pride. And I can remember James Brown's song in the, I don't know when it came, the 60s, 70s, whenever I'm black and I'm proud, say it loud. Uh, we think having pride is one of the greatest things you can have. And I don't think we ever consider the downside of pride. And so when I was watching the Patriots-Bills game last night, Bill Belichick and the way the Patriots went about that victory made me think about Bill Belichick's lack of pride and how it, he will do anything in pursuit of a victory. He doesn't care what it looks like. He doesn't care how he goes about it. He doesn't let pride stand in the way of getting the results that he's afterwards. And it, it just me watching the Patriots last night, uh, they threw the ball three times. Uh, they ran the ball 46 times. It was an ugly, boring football game. 
and it made me, and I've got a great deal of respect for Bill Belichick, but it even elevated my respect even more. And I, I thought about last night as I'm watching that, like, if Tom Brady were there rather than Mac Jones, a rookie quarterback, if Cam Newton perhaps, is he, and Cam's not a great thrower or whatever, but if any more established quarterback had been there, uh, would they have been good with Belichick's approach to that game last night? As it relates to Tom Brady, I probably tend to think he would have been good. Tom Brady doesn't let pride stand in the way. Uh, but I'm telling you, uh, Jim, and I can't wait to circle back to you. I'm going to talk first with T.J. Moe and, and, and Steve Kim about that game. But it made me think, Jim and the audience and anybody uh, in Kansas City, years ago when I was making my bones in Kansas City and working in Kansas City, uh, I had a very good friend named Joe Magnusina. And, and Joe, and this is the you know, a former iteration of me, uh, Joe owned a strip club in Kansas City called Diamond Joe's. And he was very good friends uh, with Derek Thomas. And Derek Thomas actually introduced me to Joe. And this, again, this is when I'm in my uh, mid-20s in Kansas City. And, and Joe became one of my best friends. He's a dear friend, a mentor, uh, somewhat older guy that I, I really, really respect. And Joe, very wealthy, uh, you know, an established businessman in the Kansas City area for a long time, uh, very good to me and my family, uh, you know, treated my mother like a queen, treated any of my friends. And again, I've been friends with people from many different walks of life, and I've been very honest with you all about you know, who I was in my younger days. And so uh, you can sit and pass judgment on, you know, one of my best friends and mentors being a guy that owned a strip club. But uh, Joe Magnusini and his wife, Wendy, excellent people, good people to me, and taught me many lessons. And one of the lessons Joe taught me in my mid-20s that I've never forgotten is Joe's really wealthy, successful, and I can remember uh, having a conversation with Joe because anytime I came into Diamond Joe's or whatever, Joe would wait on me hand and foot. He would wait on Derek Thomas. He would wait on any other Chiefs players or anybody, virtually anybody that came in there. Joe would put an apron on and wait on you like he was part of the wait staff. And, and, and as Joe and I became close and I became close with his family and, and you know, I spent some holidays with his family, uh, you know, we socialized around town in, in Kansas City. I can remember turning to Joe at one point and saying, hey man, you're older than me, you're much wealthier than me, uh, you're really established. Why are you waiting on me hand and foot? Why are you putting on this apron and going to do this and going to do that for me? And, and Joe, and again, this is in the 90s and this is a reflection of the relationship. Back then you could speak very honestly 
to each other and no one would get offended. I'm still that same way, but this was certainly true in the uh, mid 1990s when, when I'm talking about. Joe said to me, he goes, it's one of the problems with uh, you black guys. Y'all let pride stand in the way of money. Y'all let pride stand in the way of doing what is the right thing. You go, I don't have a pride problem. Trust me on this. If there's a nickel on this floor, I'm going to bend over, pick it up, and put it in my pocket the same as if it was a $100 bill. And I've never forgotten that. That has stuck with me through the rest, for the rest of my life. This, I had to be 27, 28 years old when he told me this, and I remember making the commitment then in my mind. In pursuit of success, in pursuit of what's best for me or my family, I'm never gonna let pride stand in the way of doing what I think is the right thing for me, my family, and moving forward and having success. And when I think of my own career and some of the moves and the decisions that I've made that have benefited me greatly, it's because I don't let pride control me. Some of the unusual moves that I've made uh, have benefited me greatly. I can remember when I left ESPN to work at AOL Sports, and this is in the mid-2000s or late 2000s, and people thought I was, man, why would you leave ESPN? And you're going to AOL Sports, ain't nobody over at AOL Sports? And I could see how pride and, and reputation and worrying about what other people think could have prevented me from making that move, but it was one of the best moves I ever made in my career. And I, hell, a year ago, a year and a half ago, when I was like, you know what? This thing for me and Fox Sports, despite all the money it's paying me, and despite whatever prestige comes from hosting a, a television show on a cable network, this ain't what makes me happy. This isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be here in Los Angeles. I'm going to leave and I'm going to go do this thing uh, without kicking Clay Travis. That's a removal of pride. That's a removal of, of not worrying about what other people think about the way I went about my business. It was the right thing for me. And when, and, and paid off tremendously. And when I decided after, uh, you know, a short period of time, like, you know what, this outkick, that's not right for me. Th this business deal isn't what it was supposed to be and I'm gonna move. And so there's this whole thing of like, oh God, how's it gonna be perceived? And, and you know, you gotta take more pride in yourself, blah, blah. It's like, nah, man, I'm not worried about that. I'm going to do what's best for me, my family, my career, my success, and not worry about how it looks to people on the outside that don't have all the information. And so when I looked at the Patriots last night, I'm looking at Bill Belichick, a man that will not allow pride to dictate any decision that he makes about pursuing success for the New England Patriots. And it was just hats off. And so it was just another layer. Bill Belichick's won six Super Bowls as the head coach of the Patriots. I think he won two as an assistant with Bill Parcells and the Giants. And, and he, he doesn't need to add any more layers to his reputation and the respect. But 
I'm not sure if I've seen anything more impressive than what he did last night and what he was able to get 53 players to buy into to doing last night. He's preaching basically the same message that Joe Maggs preached to me, I don't know, however, 25, 26 years ago. And, and to see 53 guys buy into it, celebrate it, enjoy it, that they just went out and, and, and won a game uh, in the ugliest way possible, totally, you know, the NFL's gone pass happy, finesse happy, and, and screw it. Doesn't make sense. There's too much wind. I got this rookie quarterback. The number one thing I want to do is make sure we avoid turnovers, although they muffed a punt, and, and that cost in the game. But we're going to line up and run this football down the Buffalo Bills' throat. We're going to control the clock. We're going to limit the number of plays that we have to run on offense into this wind. And they won the game, and I just think it's an example of what a self-aware, confident person does with their ego and just eschews pride. Pride is a deadly sin, and we, and particularly for black people, we, we gotta get over this pride thing because when you start taking so much um, satisfaction or pride in your skin color, it limits your decision making. You start being loyal to this very surface level thing, the color of your skin. You're more loyal to that than anything else. And you can't see how loyalty to something this surface level as skin color prevents you from doing what's best for you as a person, best for your success. It's like, I, I wanna be loyal to my faith in a higher power. I wanna be loyal to my family that helped me. I don't want to be loyal to my skin color. And, and I say that not as that I have any shame or any negative feelings about my skin color. I say it because I know how surface level this is and how insignificant this actually is. And that the faith that my grandmother and 25th Street Baptist Church and my mother put in me and the philosophies that I derived from the church and my outlook and those beliefs that I got from the church, all more important than my skin color. Being loyal to my parents who made all kinds of sacrifices for me so that me and my brother and my stepsister and stepbrother could have success. Being loyal to them, far more important than this very surface level thing, the color of my skin. Those of you with kids making decisions that serve them, not your skin color, things that push your kids ahead, being loyal to that. 
You got nieces, nephews, family, friends, a wife, a husband doing decisions that serve them. More important than doing things that serve your skin color. This society has made skin color and or sexual preference or all these other things. Again, gay pride, black pride, all this other stuff, all these things that really just don't add up to a hill of beans. They've made that the priority and we've put our faith in God on the back burner, uh, the loyalty, the things that we owe our parents and other family members. We put all that on the back burner and we spend all of our time trying to figure out how we can serve our skin color, how we can serve our sexual preference. It's a mistake. And don't forget Wednesday is hump day. And uh, on Wednesday, Jason's going to talk about the Jesse Smollett trial and how it how it exposes racist expectations that are put on black people. He kind of threw me for a loop. I had to stop and think about this one, but you need to hear it. Jesse Smollett. Smollett destroyed his career and reputation trying to live up to a racist expectation of blackness. It's the same mistake former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick made. Popular cultures, puppet masters, academia, big tech social media apps, the executives running the TV, movie, and music industry and sports industries, and the political left, they have established victimhood as the highest form of blackness. Attaining victim status is the primary expectation placed on American black men. Meeting this expectation is especially important for mixed-raced, wealthy celebrities. In the culture created by the left, victimhood is their rite of passage into the fraternity of blackness. As much as I despise Smollett for the 2019 racial hoax he staged in Chicago, the alleged crime that currently has him on trial my disdain for the culture that baited him into the act far exceeds my disgust towards Smollett. Smollett, the child of a black woman and a white Jewish man, did what the culture told him to do and what the culture puts enormous pressure on half black, half white kids to do. Prove their blackness. In modern American culture, there's nothing blacker than being worthy of a white man's aggression. Smollett isn't worthy, so he allegedly paid two black men to pose as white and attack him. The whole scenario is funny until you consider the sadness of the mental state that would devise such a scheme and a culture that would entice it. Smollett and Kaepernick, the self-made national anthem martyr, are victims. They're victims of the racist expectations imposed on them by a sick, secular culture. At different levels, all American black people are victims of this culture. Human beings respond to expectations. Expectations can be and should be the greatest gift imposed on human beings. Expectations inspire behavior and shape mindsets. Tuesday night, I had dinner with two friends. We engaged in a debate about white privilege. What is it? Does it exist? Can it be fixed? I argue that white privilege 
certainly exist in America, and that the greatest white privilege is expectations that align with success. White people are expected to achieve academically. They're expected to master the English language. They're expected to have good credit. They're expected to show up on time. They're expected not to use the N-word. They're expected to make an effort to avoid racist thoughts and actions. They're expected to wed the mother and father of their children. Do all white people meet these expectations? Absolutely not. But being born into a world that expects you to adopt principles and behaviors that lead to success is a privilege that puts you far ahead of people who don't have those expectations. Black people, as a collective, don't have those expectations. Popular culture, as controlled by liberals, removes virtually all expectations from black people, particularly black men. We're expected to excel at football and basketball, and we're expected to meet the liberal standard of blackness. Anything we do or achieve beyond that is considered a bonus. The lack of expectations imposed on black people is the most racist act in America. It's far more racist than Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck and back. Had George Floyd entered a world that expected him to achieve beyond the athletic field, he would have been much less likely to find himself needing to be restrained by police. The lack of expectations placed on black people is systemic racism. Victimhood, being the highest level of blackness, is systemic racism. Jussie Smollett is a victim of the systemic racism maintained by white liberals. On Tuesday, while being cross-examined by the prosecution, Smollett complained that the white prosecutor was offending the black people in the courtroom by reading aloud Smollett's direct messages to one of his alleged black attackers. Smollett repeatedly used the N-word in the direct messages. The prosecutor apologized and asked Smollett to read the direct messages. Smollett, of course, obliged. See, we expect black people to call each other derogatory names. It's acceptable and appropriate. We've been programmed to hate ourselves and express our self-hatred in writing, music, and acts of violence. We expect it. Our expectations for white people are much different. We're shocked and outraged when they mimic our anti-black behavior. We don't expect that from them. We're determined to rid them of that negative behavior. Our expectations for ourselves are much lower and or non-existent. That's why it's easy for us to ignore thousands of gang murders in black neighborhoods and hold summer-long protests over a tiny handful of police-involved shootings. That's why Jesse Smollett has no problem saying the N-word repeatedly, but is mortified when a white man reads his words inside a courtroom. We're victims of the racist expectations we've adopted. On Thursday, Jason was a guest on Tucker Carlson this week. 
and his appearance caused a bit of a stir around the internet. Now, please, at this moment, allow me to interject. Yes, his appearance did. And yes, it caused a stir around the internet. But it's actually my video starring me, yours truly, Dr. Vaughn Jones. That Mediaite, there's a website called Mediaite.com that kind of tracks the media. And, and they wrote a story uh, capturing some of the more interesting things I said. Of course, Mediaite is left-leaning and, and you know, a liberal and doesn't like people like me, and so they put a very negative spin. Uh, Jason Whitlock says being transgender is part of satanic philosophy of unhealthy desires, like marrying a cat. It's not inaccurate, uh, and so, but here's what the story says. Jason Whitlock donned his tinfoil hat on Wednesday night and claimed global elites are using criminals and mentally unstable people to destroy the United States and rewrite the Constitution. In doing so, he also lumped transgender people in with the individuals who want to marry cats. He called these unhealthy desires. Uh, then they go on there as a coalition, this quoting me, there's a coalition that has been built of criminals, the mentally unstable and just bitter people. Look, it's what we basically pointed out in Jim's infomercial that we played the past two days and we'll play it at some point during today's show. But we sarcastically and humorously pointed out that the left, the global elites are through bail reform, through this soft on crime, through defund the police, they're empowering a criminal element to create chaos and anarchy around the United States. And they want chaos and anarchy around the United States so that they can at some point argue, see, this country's a failure. There's so much racial division, there's so much tension, everybody hates each other. This whole thing, it was inevitable. Yeah, it was, it was a nice 200 year run, but it, it had to end this way because this is what America has really always been. What you're seeing now pouring out in our major cities, the crime, the violence, uh, the anarchy, the burning, the looting, the, the smash and grabs, this was all inevitable because the people who wrote the Constitution were horribly flawed and racist people, and they wrote a bad Constitution. And so we need a brand new one. And so you can call that a tinfoil hat. I call it facts. I call it a reading of the facts, an interpretation of the facts. Why else are we letting common criminals in and out of jail? Why else would Kyle Rittenhouse go to Kenosha and the three people he had major conflict who were all participating in the Black Lives Matter rally, why else all three of them with criminal records? Two of them with major criminal records. One of them a pedophile, multiple pedophile, anally raping young boys between ages nine and 11. But somehow he's involved with the BLM protests and riots. And the other guy, you're not, fooling anyone at this point. From Antifa 
to Black Lives Matter, to all these protests and rallies, they're filled with criminals and the mentally unstable. They're filled with people with purple and pink hair who are mad as hell, who, who don't like their lives, who, I mean, that's why they can't stand this Andy No uh, on, on Twitter because he keeps highlighting the people that are consistently getting arrested at these Antifa uh, protests and rallies and the people that are consistently doing the violence around the country. They're multiple time criminals, habitual criminals. This is not, and this is what, the whole left was paying bail. If you go out and riot and loot during the summer of 2020, LeBron James and Kamala Harris were raising money to get you out of prison. So nothing I argued last night on Tucker Carlson is a tinfoil hat. It's no conspiracy theory. It's the facts. From Kamala Harris to LeBron James, on, that's the vice president of the United States. To LeBron James, the, the most prominent athlete in America, out raising bail for rioters, for rioters and looters, for career criminals. But, but I got a tenfold hat on because I can see where this is going. This is paid anarchy so that the corporate media people can go on and make their arguments and sit on uh, Joy Reid, Rachel Maddow show and talk about how America's a failure and all the, the, uh, the rioting and the looting and all of that. Th that's, that's, that's the voice of the unheard. That's how the unheard speak. And it's actually uh, white supremacy's fault that they're looting and rioting these stores. If America wasn't dominated by white supremacy, they would be teaching Sunday school rather than looting and rioting. So I called that out, and then in the second part of the interview, I, I said the thing that really pissed them off. Uh, and so I think we have that clip, and we're going to play. Here I am on Tucker Carlson last night with the real point I made that really pissed them off. Well, I, I, <laughs> you can't legalize and normalize every human desire without removing God. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you believe you're flawed and that Jesus died for your sins. And you believe that by embracing Christianity, you can start to tame your unhealthy desires, things that don't lead to success, things that don't promote good things for you and society as a whole. You gotta remove the Christianity in order for people to just give in and normalize whatever desire you have. If you wanna marry a cat, if you think you're, you, were, you were born a biological man but you're really a woman, if you think you're a dog, it, it, whatever your desire, they wanna normalize. It's a do what thou wilt, it's a satanic philosophy. You have to remove Christianity to impose and install that. It, it's classic Marxism. Karl Marx is yeah. just sitting around applauding the work that's being done right here in this country. That's what I said. That's what pissed off Mediaite. Uh, Mediaite in, in their next thing, for the record, this is what they wrote after quoting me saying all that. Karl Marx died in 1883. And so there's two different ways to interpret that.
I interpret it as like, oh, they think I'm stupid and don't know that Karl Marx has been dead for more than 100 years. That's one way to interpret it, but which I do. I was speaking hypothetically or, you know, anyway, metaphysical. Royce White called me this morning and gave me a different interpretation that I can't figure out who's right and who's wrong. He says they put it in because they're basic, they're uh, atheist website and they're basically saying there is no afterlife. So why would you say that Karl Marx is in hell clapping or, you know, they may in heaven clapping or somewhere in the afterlife enjoying the fruits of his labor? Because we are living in the time of the fruits of his labor here in America. His Marxist political ideology is overtaking and overrunning America. We, we can, we're seeing it play out. And so I, I don't know, or were they trying to mock me and say this idiot doesn't know Karl Marx is dead? Or as Royce White interpreted, are they basically saying, hey, there is no afterlife, so don't, don't uh, act like Karl Marx is anywhere enjoying the chaos that he created. Whatever. I want to be crystal clear, and I, I was amazed. Sometimes I get on Tucker Carlson or some of these other shows where you're talking in real small windows and in real small sound bites, and, and you wonder if you make your argument completely. And so going back and reading their transcript and then rehearing what I had to say, I actually did a good job of explaining exactly what I think. That this whole leftist thing, this whole Marxist thing, this, it's all attached to Satanism. That this whole do what thou wilt mentality and, and give in to every desire, that is satanic. And so those of us that are believers, we believe what we've been told in the Bible is like, hey, lust and, and unhealthy desires are a part of our nature because of what went on between Adam and Eve in the garden. And that we embrace Christianity to try to combat our unhealthy desires. The Aleister Crowley, Karl Marx, satanic worldview is that no, give in to all of your desires. Normalize all of your desires. Justify all of your desires. Anybody that questions any of your desires, if you are attracted to young people, to children, hey, that's your desire, you were born with it, we should legalize it, and I'll put my tinfoil hat on again, I've been telling friends and family for a good seven, eight years. In our lifetime, they're going to legalize pedophilia. It's going to happen. And I'm just, look, and I've been crystal clear on this show that many of my desires and things that I gave into, promiscuous sex outside of a marriage, that's why I'm wearing my faith publicly, because I'm trying to combat those desires that are unhealthy for me, don't lead <clears throat> to success. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm leaning into my faith, because it helps me combat 
that desire. I don't see that desire any differently than people who have a same sex desire. They need Jesus the same as I do to combat what I believe is an unhealthy desire. I don't want them vilified any more than me for my unhealthy desire of promiscuous sex with women. So again, the gay person, I don't see as any more sinful than me, and I know some people will disagree with that and, and think, oh, you know, it's an abomination and, you know, it, it's worse. But I really don't play that game. I'm gonna let God do the judging on that. All I know is it's an unhealthy sexual desire. And so I'm not sitting around trying to justify my unnatural desire or unhealthy desire, because it may be natural, but it's unhealthy. And so they are trying to justify and normalize all, all desires. And I'm just sorry, particularly if all I can speak to is what men, 75% of the stuff that runs through our head is unhealthy and needs to be combated. And faith does that. And so they have a, in my view, a satanic worldview. Just get, do what thou wilt. Just do it. Like Nike says. Like Aleister Crowley says, do what thou wilt. It's satanic. I stand by that. <laughs> oh, boy. On Friday, Jason discusses the guilty verdict in the Juicy Schmolet trial. And Jason firmly believes that Jesse or Juicy or whatever his name is should serve time in prison. I don't know about that. Might be given that may like letting the wolf take care of the chicken coop. Hell, that boy do stuff just to stay in jail. Be like, Jesse, you can go now. I'm not ready. <laughs> Jesse, you done did five years. Yeah, but I need to do five more. Or at least give me eight. Is Empire back? Jesse Smollett? Yeah, he belongs in jail. Not for long, but long enough to send a message that the country will no longer tolerate racial hoaxes. If actress Lori Laughlin can serve two years in prison for bribing her children's way into college, it's not far-fetched to believe Smollett should serve six months for adding to America's racial divide. It's easy to relate to Laughlin's crime. Parents will do anything to give their kids a leg up. Laughlin was one of 33 parents willing to pay large sums of money to buy their kids into prestigious colleges and universities. It's a fairly relatable crime. Smollett's crime isn't. On Thursday, a jury convicted the former Empire actor on five of the six charges related to staging a hate crime in January of 2019. Smollett, who is black and gay, claimed two white male Trump supporters beat him up, tied a noose around his neck, called him the N-word, and warned him that Chicago was MAGA country. In truth, Smollett paid two black Nigerians to assault him and help stage the hoax. Smollett's telling of the story smelled like a hoax from day one. He lives in such a fantasy world and abuses drugs so frequently that he's completely unaware of reality. Chicago is far more Larry Hoover gangster disciple country than Trump land. 
Trump supporters don't assault black men at 2 a.m. in Chicago. Black gang members do. Smollett is an idiot, an imbecile with no connection to reality, to the reality of poor and working class black Americans. He's a Hollywood elite in bed with the left-wing political and media elite. We learned during the course of his trial that Smollett spent his free time smoking weed, snorting cocaine, and visiting gay bathhouses with one of his Nigerian co-conspirators. He lived the typical Hollywood celebrity life. He used race to enhance his brand. For, his, for this crime, he belongs in jail for six months. Too many ultra-elites are using race to enhance their brands. From LeBron James to Colin Kaepernick, multi-millionaire celebrity influencers have grown comfortable stirring racial division to increase their social media standing. In 2017, without providing a shred of evidence, LeBron James claimed vandals spray-painted the N-word on his Los Angeles mansion. Worse, James analogized the crime to the pain Emmett Till's mother felt when learning that her 14-year-old son had been brutally murdered. Let me quote directly uh, from LeBron James speaking to the media back in 2017 when he suffered this hate crime. I think back to Emmett Till's mom, actually. It's kind of one of those, one of the first things I thought of. The reason that she had an open casket is because she wanted to show the world what her son went through as far as a hate crime and being black in America. No matter how much money you have, no matter how famous you are, no matter how many people admire you, being black in America is tough. We got a long way to go for us as a society and for us as African-Americans until we feel equal in America. Brian James worth a half billion dollars. He spends most of his life with white and black people worshiping him. How tough is it for LeBron James for all his money? How tough is it? Oh my God, it's so tough being worth a half billion dollars and all these people kissing my ass. It's very tough for me, LeBron James. I gotta pay people to put hair on the top of my head. I got people to groom my beard. Oh, it's just very tough. And they spray painted the N-word on my LA mansion when I was in Cleveland and my servants had to clean it up before I could see it or any of my kids. Before I could even show the police, my servants cleaned it up. Oh, it's so tough. I'm like, first thing I thought of when I was in Cleveland and heard about someone spray painting my mansion, first thing I thought about was Emmett Till and his mama. It was very similar to what I was going through hearing about someone spray painting my garage door in Los Angeles, my summer home. Doesn't that remind you of Emmett Till's mama? When Emmett Till's mama saw her 14-year-old son brutally murdered, I'm sure she thought, oh my God, there will be an NBA player someday that will have his garage door spray painted and it will be just like my 14-year-old son being brutally murdered. They'll think of me whenever they see spray paint and graffiti. Like Smollett, 
James is an intellectual lightweight, far removed from the reality of working class and poor black people. Like Smollett, James is in bed with the left-wing political and media elite. Like Smollett, James is obsessed with increasing his fame and fortune, and he's willing to use race to do it. The race bait industry is one of the most profitable professions available to celebrities with limited intelligence, secular values, and a malleable worldview. That's why Colin Kaepernick left his football career to launch a second career as the racial martyr symbol, Mute Hamid Ali. One month after Smollett called police claiming to be a victim of a racist attack, American political science professor Wilfred Wiley published the book, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. The book argues that there are actually more white black hate crime hoaxes then there are white, black hate crimes. This is why I believe Smollett belongs in jail for six months. People have grown comfortable staging fake hate crimes. Most observers believe the judge will send Smollett to probation or to one or two months of jail time at most. He's likely to receive a slap on the wrist. He has no previous criminal history. Smollett's first offense, though, is a lot worse than the poor or the poor black or white kid who gets arrested for stealing. Smollett committed a very serious crime. His allegations could have sparked civil unrest in Chicago. His allegations clearly contributed to the country's racial divide. Beyond that, his preposterous allegations undermine the credibility of people who do experience legitimate forms of racial unfairness. Smollett harmed everyone, whether black or white. Anyone with a genuine concern for racial harmony and reconciliation should want to see Smollett harshly punished. A light sentence won't teach Smollett or America's other racial pranksters a lesson. Despite the damning testimony of his Nigerian collaborators, Smollett chose to take the witness stand and claim there was no hoax. He repeated his lies under oath. He's an actor and an activist. He's unlikely to ever repent, but sending him to prison for six months will deter others from following his path. It's the same reason a judge put Lori Laughlin behind bars for two months. Her husband served five months. The goal was to send a message to other rich parents. The judge should use Smollett to send a loud message. America is tired of the racial hoaxes executed by the left, corporate media, and celebrity elites. Go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock, hit the like, hit the subscribe button, join the Fearless Army and get the new Fearless Army swag gear. And join us every day at six o'clock on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Leave a comment, leave five stars. Why? I have no idea, but I guarantee you Jason C, he's gonna ask about it. See you next week.